0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua. Today's episode will be on anarcho-capitalism. So in the previous episodes, we have covered the morality of government and the practicality of government and what options there could be theoretically for a voluntary government, one that actually is moral and that is effective and efficient. Well, now, in this episode, this is typically our themes episode. We'll do a pair of three and then themes, then a case study. So for the theme here, the theme is that government is not the way to go. By their very structure and their very nature, governments just don't work to fulfill the goals that we as a society have for them. They are not efficient. They are not effective. They are not moral. They do not incentivize the behaviors that we want them to. They do not achieve the goals that we set up for a government and for any sort of organized society. Now, they can achieve some of those goals. They can achieve efficiency in some areas. They're effective in some areas. They can meet kind of the minimum requirements at times, for what we as society have for them to accomplish and for them to do but all in all they don't do everything we want them to and they don't do even the things we want them to well and so what are the other options and with this being the theme that government is not the way to go Today's episode is on, well, what else is there? If there is no government, then how can we have an organized, structured society? How can we do things? How do we manage things? How is society governed? Because there does have to be governance in society. Now, if you have been paying attention to previous episodes, and I will insert this here, that this podcast in general is chronological. It's intended to be... Listen to in its entirety, hopefully. So hopefully you have done so. And if not, hopefully you go back and do that. Because the goal for season one, the season we're in right now, is to present a full picture of how government, money, and education have all evolved as systems throughout history and then to now and what they are looking like for the future. And it's a full picture with... The past, present, and future and how that affects society and how society has evolved and how this all affects us as individuals and us as a society as a whole. And so you, you're you not going to get the whole picture and you're not going to get everything if you don't listen to the whole season. Now, the plan is probably for each season to tell a different story of sorts. The likelihood is that next season will be similar to this season in that it will tell a whole story in the span of a whole season and cover a broad range of topics related to government, political theory, money and economics, education, all these types of things just like this season has. But instead of giving just the broad overview and laying the groundwork, we'll be able to get into some more detailed stuff and hopefully get a little deeper and cover some things that are a little more interesting and original. So that's the goal. But the goal of season one that we're in right now is actually to lay the groundwork and to cover all these things that most of us have not been taught. Most of us do not know a whole lot about And unless you are very well-versed in maybe libertarian circles or homeschooling circles or you have an economics background or something like this then you probably haven't been exposed to all this and even if you do fit one of those categories you've probably only been exposed to those things and haven't been exposed to how they all connect and what the other aspects are and so that's the goal again of season one is to bring all that together how do government money and education all work together together in society to steer and to manage and to corrupt and to do all the things that they have done and so that is what this season is and with that let's get to today's episode so again like i said the theme in this series currently is that government's not the way to go and so i have to provide an alternative and that is what this is so this is anarcho-capitalism Now, to get at what that means, let's just talk about the two words here. Anarcho, related to anarchy, would be no ruler. That would be the definition there. So then you have capitalism, and capitalism is related to an economic system that involves free markets and voluntary transactions and overall the use of capital for trade, investment, and profit. And that's the economic system. And so what you do is you take that economic system – And you apply the ideology of having no ruler, hence anarchy, anarcho, and you put that together and that's what runs society. So basically, society is ran through open and free markets. You have a market system that governs society, not a traditional governmental system of rulers. So I do need to talk about the ideology here and what the background is historically these ideas go way back they go way back Uh, again if you have listened to previous episodes this is actually what I was going to say when I went off on my tangent about season one and kind of forgot where I was going where I was going to go with that is that we had a previous episode on the governance system for ancient Israel and how that was set up under mosaic law and what that looked like and that was a society that was Governed in a decentralized fashion without a formal government so these ideas of running a society without having a formal governmental system with rulers is something that is definitely not new when you jump forward in time. I am currently very interested in the time frame of the Middle Ages and the time period surrounding that. I'm doing a lot of research in that time period, and you have a similar thing there. You have the Germanic law code and how the Germanic tribes operated and governed themselves. It was also very decentralized, and they did not have an official ruler that governed the entire area. Instead, it was different tribes that ran their own households and their own immediate area, but then they worked together and they had to deal with things together. They had to come to agreements. They had to settle disputes. They had to do all these things without a nation state over them. And that's very interesting. When you get to the Middle Ages and feudalism, you have a very similar dynamic that was going on there, and that was prior to the rise of the nation-state as a whole and prior to the dominance of the Christian religion over Western society with the Pope taking a lot of political power in the decades following this time period. But to get a little more modern, these ideas typically will have their roots traced back to the philosophy of John Locke and Frederick Bastiat and Adam Smith, people of this nature. And then in more recent times, you've got Ayn Rand, who actually preaches objectivism and not anarcho-capitalism, but some of the ideologies definitely overlap there, and that is how a lot of people are introduced to these types of ideas, libertarian thought, like I said, objectivism and this type of thing. But more towards the anarcho-capitalism side, we've got Murray Rothbard is probably the most famous. You've got Ludwig von Mises as probably the most popular economist in the Austrian economic circles as well as libertarian circles. And then you've got Robert Murphy is kind of a current economist that does a lot of work in this area with anarcho-capitalism specifically. And so that gives you a range of the different people, the different time periods that are involved here for some background on where this ideology came from, it came from all of these places. It is a combination of all this stuff, and it has been fleshed out by many different people through many different angles and in many different ways. And a lot of these aspects have actually happened historically, and they have been tried, and they have worked, and they have been carried out in different ways. And some worked very well. Some did not work very well. Some have not actually even been possible until today with today's technology. But that's the background that I want to cover for a very brief overview of where these ideas came from. But To the core ideology of anarcho-capitalism, the main ideology consists of a few different things. Number one would probably be that taxation is theft. I have talked about that before. I don't need to go over that again. That would be one of the top things. Another top thing would be the non-aggression principle, and that would be that no one may initiate force or cause harm to anyone else or their property. Another founding ideology would be that majority rule is immoral, and instead of majority rule, we should go by more of a natural law understanding of rights where we all as individuals have a right to our lives and to the things that we produce in our lives and this is a natural right that we all have as human beings that should not be infringed upon and it is not given to us by anybody and it cannot be taken away by anybody and that is kind of the overall source of morality and rights And that's not exactly accurate. There are plenty of people that believe in anarcho-capitalism that do not hold to natural law theory or all of the teachings of John Locke. But in general, for a very brief overview here, that covers a large chunk of where these ideas come from. Now, another aspect here would be that markets are efficient and effective, That is a core philosophy for anarcho-capitalism. It is definitely necessary. If they were not effective and efficient, then the second half of anarcho-capitalism, the capitalism half, would not make a whole lot of sense. So that is a core ideology here. The other part would be a different view of history. So typically, people who fall into this camp lean more towards the idea of the state As being a monopoly on force and that where this comes from is that basically you had a group of people that would band together they would take over a certain other group of people or a region and through this monopoly on force and forcing those and coercing those that they took over to follow their rules and their ways and to pay them money and give them tithes and things of this nature By doing this, they ended up becoming legitimized over time as the rulers of that area, and that that is basically where governments came from. And this idea comes out of Murray Rothbard's Anatomy of the State, and that is one of his more popular works. It's actually fairly short and a very easy read and you can find it for free at the Mises Institute and I would highly recommend looking that up but that's kind of the idea on where governments came from and typically people that are pro-anarcho-capitalism have a different view on a lot of historical concepts and that has probably come through in previous episodes when I've talked about the origins of money for example and the corruption and conspiracy episodes where we talked about a different view of history where you actually discuss the negative things that states have done and the lies that have been told and the background information that would be classified at one point and then now is released oftentimes. And then looking back, we can see what the real picture really is. Instead of the censored presentation that is given in modern public schools, which makes sense. Why would a government school teach things against the government? That wouldn't really make a whole lot of sense, although they may mention a few things in passing that they can't get around. In general, that's not going to play a large role in the curriculum, and again, that just is common sense. The final thing I want to mention about the ideology here with this philosophy involves where states get their rights so I talked about where people get their rights it is a just natural thing that we all have we all have a right to our own life but the question is where do states get their rights now the obvious answer would be that they get their rights from the people that they govern so that's the trade-off that you as an individual group with other individuals and all of you partner up and Willingly give some of your rights up and your right to certain actions up and give it to another group, a small group of people that will make decisions and govern. And that's the idea that that's where a state gets its rights. Well, what about all the rights that a state has that individuals don't have? So if an individual cannot forcefully take the money of another individual, that that would be theft, and no individual has that right to forcefully take property from someone else, then how can that individual then give that non-existent right to the state? It doesn't really make sense. So how can the state have a right to do many of the things that the state does, If the individuals who give the state its rights never had those rights to begin with, so they can't give them to the state, so then where do they come from? Well, in the past, it would have been said that it was something that was divinely given to a government and that that's where it comes from, the divine right of kings philosophy here. But we don't really follow that on a large national scale in modern societies, typically, And so what's the answer? I I don't know. And that is the whole point, that states should not have the rights that they do in modern society, and that is one of the other founding ideologies of anarcho-capitalism. And so since they should not have these rights, they technically do not have these rights, then they should not do these things. And according to anarcho-capitalists, the state just shouldn't exist. Now, there are many more ideas here that underlie anarcho-capitalism and what it stands for and what that actually looks like. First off, everything is already done by individuals. There's nothing that's done in society today that individuals don't do. Now, many of these individuals work for or are directed by the state, but the individuals themselves still do it. The state still does subcontract out stuff to companies and hires individuals to do specific tasks as well directly. But it's always individuals doing them. So anytime you have a question of who is going to do this if the state doesn't exist, well, there's already people that do that. And so those are probably the people that would do it. Now, if your argument is that there's no incentive to do said task, well, then I guess the question would be, Why does said task need to be done? And if there is incentive to do it, then someone's going to find a way to make a profit doing it, and then they'll do it, and they'll hire probably the same people that do it now. And that's generally how this philosophy is laid out. Now, next episode, I will get into the objections to anarcho-capitalism, and I will definitely cover that with much more depth and detail than I just laid out here in five sentences. So you can tune in next time and hear about those arguments. But the idea here is just that markets would coordinate things instead of the state. So again, people already do things. They do everything. And we have already shown that markets are more efficient and more effective than the state and governmental systems So if that's the case, then it would make a lot of sense to have the markets coordinate these things instead of the state. The other aspect here is that everything is voluntary. So the markets are made up of individuals, entrepreneurs, businesses, corporations, and none of these groups or people are allowed to use force against anybody else. They can't force you to buy their product. They can't force you to use their services. You have to willingly make a transaction with that company or with that entrepreneur or with that business, and that's the way markets work. You give a certain amount of money or trade something, some good or some service to them, and they provide a good or service to you, and it's a voluntary transaction here. So very different than interacting with the state where the state mandates that you have to do something, and they will forcefully make you do said thing. That is how the state governs. So it's a very different mentality here, that you have a voluntary system that's coordinating everything very efficiently and effectively, but it's not actually governed by any one group or one person. And so what is governing this? Well, if you go back to the ideas of Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations, he talks about the invisible hand. And if you are curious in these things, that would definitely be an avenue of research that I would recommend pursuing. But beyond that, the main thing is just spontaneous order. It's the idea that systems work in an orderly manner without a centralized authority. There are many systems in existence today that we all interact with, that basically organize themselves. It's a spontaneous order that occurs that is not being directed by anybody. We see this often in nature. There are many different animals and insects in particular that do things and perform tasks as a group without having a leader directing them and telling them what to do and assigning different tasks to different participants, but that the insects as a colony go out and just do things and they end up doing them very efficiently and very effectively. They know what needs to be done and they just do it. It's a spontaneous order. But for a more relevant example to human beings... The first one I wanted to mention was bread, and this is the one that is used often by Russ Roberts of Econ Talk, which is a, another great podcast I would highly recommend, but he uses the example of bread and bakeries. So, for example, you have New York City, or you can imagine whatever town or city that you live in. And that is probably more relatable. So in your city, there will be bread and bagels and baked goods that are available every morning for your fellow citizens to purchase and to enjoy. There will also be bread that is available to buy throughout the day so that you can use it in your lunches or use it to make dinner And It will always be available, but it's going to be available in many different places. You're going to have restaurants There will be bakeries. There will be grocery stores There will be all different kinds of places that you can buy a bagel or buy a loaf of bread or whatever you want Whatever baked good item that you need But the key here is that there is no lord over the baked goods sector here. It just doesn't exist the sector runs itself. Basically, it's a market economy. And through profits and losses, through supply and demand, this market works very effectively and very efficiently. Typically, when you go to buy a loaf of bread or when you go somewhere to buy a bagel, if you want a certain type of bagel in the morning for breakfast on your way to work, you can be pretty sure that you can just drive to a place that sells that and that there is a place that sells that and you can buy it and get what you want. Now, is there some waste? Yes, there is. There are times that stores or restaurants make a little bit too much or a grocery store doesn't sell their goods before they go bad. And so there is a small amount of waste. The key here and the anarcho-capitalist perspective would be that it is as efficient and as effective as a system can get. If you actually had a central authority mandating how much bread could be made what types of bread would be made where and how it would be distributed how much flour would be delivered and produced and all these things all down the chain that that probably would not work out it would be extremely difficult to figure all that out now in today's world maybe you could have a lot of computers that are using a lot of processing power and running very complex algorithms to figure out what demand is and what people want, how much they're willing to pay for it, where they are, so where you're going to distribute them and how, and all this stuff. Maybe that's theoretically possible, but overall, I would just argue, how are you going to be able to determine these things without actually having a market in the first place to figure out what demand is and what prices should be? You have to have a market first in order to analyze it and see what these things are. And so, basically, spontaneous order is what runs your local baked goods sector. Another good example here that relates to spontaneous order, but also just for the efficiency of markets in general, would be that of a pencil. There is a fairly famous essay that was written called iPencil that tracks the whole life cycle, in a sense, of a pencil, where all the things come from, what all is involved with making a pencil, all this stuff. I actually have a book in the Tuttle Twins series for my kids, and one of those books is called The Tuttle Twins and the Miraculous Pencil. I will be drawing my example here from both of these sources, and the one, The Tuttle Twins book, comes directly from the SAI pencil. But the idea here is that if you look at a normal wooden lead pencil, what do you see? What is involved there? Well, you have wood, That a pencil is made out of it's also made out of lead which consists of graphite and some other chemicals you also have an eraser that is made from rubber as well as some other things you've got the ferrule that little metal strip that attaches the eraser to the wooden part of the pencil and that is obviously made of metal and you also must have paint to paint the pencil, typically yellow, if you're thinking of a stereotypical wooden pencil. And so where do all these things come from? Well, the yellow paint is made from lacquer that comes from castor oil, which often comes from plants that are grown in India. To make erasers, you need to have rap seed oil, and that comes from Indonesia. You will also need oil from rubber trees that are likely grown in Africa. They often use pumice that comes from Italy to make them gritty so that the erasers work better and do their job. You also need to have this graphite that is mined out of the ground at an open pit mine usually, and then the other thing you need is wood, and that comes from trees, obviously, which can be sourced at many different places. The final thing is that little strip of metal that attaches everything together, and that is typically made from brass, which comes from zinc and copper ore. And so you have to take all these different things that come from all these different places and you have to uh, assemble them together. Now as I kind of mentioned, each one of these things also has a process to create them. So let's use the wood for example. In order to get the wood for a pencil, you've got to cut down a tree. Well, what do you need in order to cut down a tree? Well, you have to have a saw. You have to have somebody either operating the equipment or manually cutting the tree down. You have to process that tree and get it into a form that it can actually be shipped in and used. And all of this has to be done with logging trucks and ships and all these workers that are involved also need food in order to survive and eat their lunch during the day They likely would like to have a home to sleep in at night. They probably would like some entertainment. Maybe they want to watch Netflix. And so they have to be provided with some sort of entertainment that they enjoy. So every tiny little thing has this long rabbit trail associated with it that affects many other things. Now, this tree that's being cut down in order to make a pencil there's no telling if it's actually going to be making a pencil. The people cutting it down don't know what it's going to be used for. It could be used for hardwood floors. It could be used for making furniture. It could be used for building a house, or it could be used for making a pencil. Now, is there somebody out there that is saying, we must have 100 million pencils next month. And in order to do this, we need to cut down X amount of trees in X amount of time and ship them to X facility over here. No, that's not the way it works. We have an open market that all of these different materials and supplies go through in order to get a price attached to them. And that price is dictated by supply and demand, which is further governed by competition. And so what happens is all of these different industries and sectors and buyers and companies that want to use wood for something are putting in bids for this wood. And according to how many different people want to buy wood at any given time, that creates the demand. And if the demand is higher than the supply is, there's not enough wood for all these different uses that the market actually wants to participate in, then that will drive the price of wood up because there's not enough. So the wood supplier can charge a little bit more. That'll curb the demand. Not as many people will want it at this higher price. And so they can try to level out supply and demand. That higher price will then incentivize the wood harvesting companies to harvest more wood because they can get a higher price for it. And then that wood would then start to meet the demand that's in the market. And you have this pricing mechanism and supply and demand mechanism and all these things work together to provide wood. And that is just one aspect of a pencil. The exact same thing happens with the graphite, with the rubber oil, with the castor oil, with all these different things. And these are happening in hundreds of, Of different locations all around the world many different countries many different cultures many different people and all of this is coordinated and ends up becoming a pencil somehow the idea is that nobody actually knows how to make a pencil And that's because no one person can actually make a pencil, at least not reasonably. I guess technically it may be possible, but they would have to personally mine the graphite. They would have to personally go to a country that has rubber trees and harvest what they need from that. They would personally have to go and create the lacquer. They would have to cut down the tree and process it themselves. They would have to assemble the pencil themselves and get the lead inside the wood and attach the ferrule to the eraser and all these different things. And there is no one person or one company that does all of these things. It is a market that works to satisfy this demand for pencils. And this demand for pencils is just a tiny little piece of all of these other supplies and materials that are used for so many different other things. Some of them are used for end products, and some of them are just another piece in the supply chain for something that is much further down from being an end product. And so basically, hopefully this explains how complicated a market truly is and how it does span governments, it spans countries. There is no way for a government or a centralized planning committee to actually figure all this stuff out and organize it and organize it well. They could try, but... I I think it's fairly obvious, and if not, I can explain it further in another episode. But it should, to me at least, be fairly obvious that this is not something that an individual or a group of individuals can figure out. They're not going to know what all these different sectors are that need wood and exactly how much wood they're all going to need and therefore how much wood should be produced and cut down and therefore what price they should be provided at – and what things they should be divvied out to. And then from there, depending on the amount of wood that you divvy out to different sectors, then you have to apportion the equivalent balance of other materials to make all these other end products. And it's just, it's way too complicated. But markets do this extremely efficiently and extremely effectively, and that is how we are as prosperous as a society as we are today, is through things like international trade and open markets and things like this. So that is a foundational aspect of anarcho-capitalism, and the idea here is that the state can't do this. The state can try, but it will fail. Markets, however, can do this and do it well and currently do it. We have proof of this. And so that is where the idea of anarcho-capitalism is coming from. So another aspect of this, beyond spontaneous order and markets and such, would be the incentive model. So... Basically, people typically have the argument that, well, everybody's selfish. No one's going to actually want to do the right thing and run a good business because they're just out for their own selfish desires. And so we're not going to have an efficient market that actually provides people what they want because all these business owners are only focused on profit and short-term profit and maximizing their gains and they don't care about the customers. Well, the argument here is that under an anarcho-capitalism scenario, You don't have crony capitalism. It can't exist because crony capitalism is using the state in order to keep out your competition and do regulations and get government contracts and all this kind of stuff. That doesn't exist. And so with an anarcho-capitalist society, the only way for a company to be profitable and for this selfish businessman to actually earn a profit would be for him to provide a good or a service that is at an equal or higher quality than its competition, and that provides this good or service at a price that is equal or less than their competition. And there are definitely exceptions to this, but in general, that's the way that a businessman will succeed in an anarcho-capitalist society, and that's the only way to succeed. You can't use the state to gain a competitive edge That's just not possible because there is no state. So basically, even if you grant that all businessmen and all businesses and all entrepreneurs are completely selfish, completely greedy, they only care about profits, well, then you're probably going to have a really good system because if I provide pencils, for example, then the only way for me to make a lot of money selling pencils is if I provide a pencil that meets the demand that people have for pencils and I can meet that demand at a cheaper price than they can find anywhere else. So the customer is actually getting the highest grade quality product they can at the cheapest price they can find at whatever balance they see fit. Some people want a lower quality pencil that they can get very cheaply. Some people want a very high quality pencil and they'll pay a little extra for it. And there will be entrepreneurs that can meet these different niches or a company that provides multiple product lines of pencils. But either way, demand is being met. And through just purely selfish desires for profits these businessmen are satisfying the market demand effectively and efficiently. They're maximizing utility, and they're maximizing the efficiency of allocating resources to whatever sector they're involved in. And that's one of the best aspects of... A free open market system is the allocation of resources. Resources are allocated efficiently and effectively based on a profit loss spectrum on supply and demand and these types of things we're talking about. That is why markets are so effective at satisfying demand and organizing society and economies. This is where Ayn Rand should get a shout out. She is the one that started the idea of objectivism, and the idea there is that selfishness is actually moral and altruism is immoral. And so what you should do is what is best for you, and that is the moral thing to do. Now, I don't personally agree with this, But that is the idea, and she is one that lays out very good cases for what I just explained for selfishness and selfish desires leading to efficient and effective systems and an efficient capitalist economy. So that is something you can further read into if you are interested in that topic. Another aspect of open markets and capitalism that works very well to improve effectiveness and efficiency is competition. Competition increases the positive aspects of an economy while deterring the corruption that exists in most modern systems. Now, I'm not saying that the system is perfect and all positive and that there's absolutely zero corruption. No, that's never going to happen. People do evil things and bad things and stupid things, and there's nothing we can do about that that will always exist in any system. But... Competition in an open and free market really keeps these aspects in check. It keeps the negative aspects in check much better than a state system, and it promotes and incentivizes the positive aspects of an economic system much better than a state government does. And this is something that has been shown historically as being accurate. And hopefully theoretically, the way I've explained this, I have hopefully clearly laid it out in such a way that you can see that it is very beneficial for an economy and a society to be ran according to these types of systems. Now, one of the objections I will get to right now would be non-profitable ventures, and this would be any venture that does not make a profit, just like it sounds. And so, in this type of system, any unprofitable venture must have support somehow. It may get that support from individuals, it may be that groups contribute to a certain cause or to a certain product or service or something, but... There must be some sort of support that comes from somewhere, because if a business or an organization does not have the money to operate, then it can't operate. Without the state having the ability to steal money from its citizens and give it to other causes that are unprofitable, these non-profitable ventures have to be funded somehow, and so that's where you have maybe charities that step up and individuals that donate to certain causes. We don't have a welfare state in an anarcho-capitalist society, but there is support for those that are in need, and I'll get more into detail on that aspect of it in the following episode, but the idea here is that there is not waste, whereas if you are forcefully funding unprofitable ventures through theft and not incentivizing these ventures to actually accomplish their goals or even if they do not to accomplish them efficiently that's leads to a lot of waste that's a whole lot of waste and it is pointless waste The other aspect here is that there is no forced drain of resources. You're not having resources allocated to things that are not profitable. And according to a market system, if something is not profitable, there is not a need for it in the society. There's not a demand for it. If there is enough demand for it, then there will be a profit there, or there will be resources that can be allocated to said thing. So if there are starving homeless people in the streets and there is a demand to help these people and to help them survive and get them housing and food, then that demand will be met. If the demand is only theoretical in people's minds to make them feel good, but they're not actually willing to do anything or give anything in order to make it happen, then that is not real demand. So I have not and will not explain fully in this episode how... We handle things like this in an anarcho-capitalist society, but at least I have proposed what this looks like and how most of the time these markets perform extremely well and meet all demands in the market. Now, again, there may be some demands that we could argue, hey, this will not be met or cannot be met or is not being met. How is that going to function in a stateless society? And that is next episode. So moving on from that, Another aspect of an anarchist society in general is that there has to be strong property rights. Basically, you own your life and your actions. You are in charge of that. You are responsible and you own these things. You also then own the produce of your labor. So anything you do or create, you own because it's an extension of you, your life and your actions. And so with this, this is actually true ownership. I've given some commentary before on what ownership really is and the fact that in many cases we don't actually own the things we think we own. But in this type of society, you actually do own that. You do not have to make any payments on your things. You do not have to have any permissions. You have the right to sell, to buy, to change, to destroy, to create, to associate as you see fit. That is your choice because you own you, and you own your things. You are in complete ownership of them. This is one of the core aspects of anarcho-capitalism, and it really helps to create a foundation for a society that works, and without it, there are a lot of breakdowns that start to occur. In addition to strong property rights, there are also strong contract obligations. So when you don't have the state, you don't have force that can be applied to people to make sure they do what you want them to, then you have to have another mechanism to make sure that people will do what they say they're going to do. That mechanism would be contracts. Contracts bind people to certain behaviors, actions, regulations, restrictions, whatever, and they perform an essential function in any society, but especially in a stateless society. Contracts are extremely important. Now, the question then would be, well, how do you enforce a contract if you don't have the police or a state Court system, and I'll get into that again in the next episode. I promise that's not a cop out. I actually will get into it. This episode would be way too long if I went into detail on all these things. So stay tuned next time. The final aspect I want to cover here is what does anarcho capitalism look like practically? What does it look like on the ground level in a way that I would notice as an individual, as a citizen in a society? Well, there are a few things that would probably stand out to you that are very different than what you experience in today's societies ran by modern states. One of these differences you would notice would be that war is something that is not very common anymore. All of a sudden, war only occurs if individuals want to fight and they want to willingly fund that war. So a government is not going to steal money from people and give it to defense contractors and force people to serve in its military and start wars abroad with other countries for their own reasons and usually lie about it. That will not happen, or at least the majority of the time that will not happen. I concede that... Anything is possible and all this is theory, so I cannot make a 100% guarantee on any of this. But in general, war is not going to be as common and will not be as easy to start and to participate in if you don't have unlimited funds and the use of force to get people to fight these wars for you. So it becomes much less common. People are typically only going to be fighting wars for matters of defense or for matters of revenge or possibly for investment because maybe they can take over a certain area and forcefully extract resources from the locals and make a profit. But again, this will... Be brought up in the next episode, and I will argue that this is not something that will occur in our anarcho-capitalist society. It is extremely unlikely to have warlords taking over, and I will explain that a little further. So the next thing that is very different in this stateless society is that insurance plays a much bigger role in society than it does today. And also, insurance is not Subject to whatever the government forces insurance companies to do and they cannot again rely on crony capitalism In order to make their business better than the market would make it independently We have to use voluntary transactions here So insurance companies are meeting demand in the marketplace for people that are willing to pay for whatever they're providing That's the way it works with this Since you don't have state protections and you don't have a state police force or state courts or anything like this, people will need to have reassurances that they are covered should anything happen to them. And this will take the form of many different things. You've got things like life insurance. Yes, you might have some sort of protection insurance. You might have insurance on certain items or certain people or certain actions who knows but the deal here is that insurance would actually work the way that insurance was originally intended to work basically a lot of people pay a small amount and pool their resources together and a company takes all those resources and allocates them out where there is actual need but that in general Whatever it is they're protecting against is something that is a very low risk or a relatively low risk. And so they're only paying out every once in a while for claims for a very small percentage of the people that are buying the insurance. That's how insurance is supposed to work. And so with this, if someone is buying insurance that protects their life and their property, well, then the insurance company is going to be incentivized, obviously, to keep them alive and not pay out on that kind of policy well with this there would be a demand for a stable society and there would actually be a player here the insurance company that would be incentivized to make sure that this society stays stable and so with this The insurance companies would probably fund different protection agencies or defense contractors or people like this, whatever they feel is necessary according to their risk assessments that they will do to make sure that they're a profitable business. That's what they have to do. And so according to this, they will fund different things like this. It's kind of like how right now, most insurance companies offer you a discounted or a free gym membership. And that's something that they don't have to do. No one's forcing them to do it. But if you go to the gym and you work out and you exercise and you stay healthy, then you are much less likely to go to the hospital and rack up a very large bill that then the insurance company is going to have to cover. And so it is cheaper for them to buy a gym gym membership for you or at least contribute to one and... Then lower the risk of them having to pay out on medical bills, that is much cheaper for them than to not do so and pay more in medical bills for their customers. And the same thing would occur, likely, when it comes to protection and when it comes to policing and lots of different things in this stateless society. This is a stateless society, but The state does perform functions in society that are needed. Functions like governance, like protection, like defense, like arbitration. All of these things are necessary for an organized society. And so with this, that means that there is demand for all these things in society. So this demand will get met according to an anarcho-capitalist society. It will just be met differently, ideally more effectively and more efficiently, and it will be met through market mechanisms. So I'm just saying that insurance companies will play a very large role in this. They will not be the end-all be-all. But all of these things that governments do, at least the ones that are important, will be done by somebody in some way. Again, we can't say exactly what that will look like because it's theory, because it doesn't exist today. But we can theorize on what is likely when we look at history, when we look at the present time, when we look at things like economic theory and political theory and things like this. We can paint a picture that is likely accurate, and we can fill in a lot of the blanks here on what it would probably look like. Now, another role that insurance plays here would likely be things like a safety net. So there is no Social Security. There is no guaranteed retirement pay from a government Now, more than likely, businesses would probably be incentivized to offer pension plans and things like that to their employees, and they would probably fill a lot of that gap. But insurance companies could and likely would fill that gap as well, where people would pay on an insurance policy throughout their working life, probably, and then they have a guaranteed retirement of some kind at a certain age or a certain point in time. So they are insuring their old age in a sense and that that will be covered. And so that's another role they'll play, will be this role of a safety net that most people want in a society and most people are willing to pay for. The other thing here would be that insurance companies want to make sure that they don't pay out on their policies, at least as much as possible, because they want to make money, and that's the way it works here. And so with this, they'll want to make sure that the businesses they cover are not going to be operating in a way that will create policy enactments. And so the insurance company will be incentivized to go around and make sure that businesses are operating in a way that keeps their risk low. And in order to do this, another thing they might do would be to preemptively put some sort of regulation or restriction on their customers in order to get a certain insurance policy. So in order for a factory to get an insurance policy on their business, their workers, on whatever they want, the insurance company might say and they might stipulate that that factory cannot pollute into the water or the air or else their insurance policy will be canceled. And then the insurance company will be checking up on that and the insurance company will likely hire environmental consultants and people that do quality testing and things like this to make sure that they can develop different rules and regulations and structures to keep their risks low. Because in this anarcho-capitalist society, we mentioned how property rights are a really big deal. Well, Everything is owned by somebody. It's not that the state owns, you know, 60% of a country like it might today. The state doesn't exist. And so things like rivers would be owned by either a person or a company or a group, or maybe there are extensions of the land property that are adjacent to the river, or who knows how that would and could be set up. There are many different ways. But the point is that someone owns the river. And likely there is economic activity that's happening on that river. And so if a factory pollutes into the river, then they will be liable for damage to that property. And with an insurance company insuring that factory, they will probably have stipulations against the factory polluting. Because if they did and they got busted, the property owner sued them, then they would rely on their insurance policy more than likely. And then the insurance company would have to pay out. But if the insurance company puts a stipulation on there that they will not pay for these things or that they will only offer insurance if the factory meets this set of regulations, then that will create an incentive model for everybody to act in a way that I think we would all agree would be best for the environment and best for society as a whole. And I'll talk a little bit more about pollution and things like that, some externalities in the following episode when we get to objections. So, I'll end that part there. Another aspect that would look very different in a stateless society would be that there is no centralized police and there are no centralized court systems. There is no government court. There's no government police. There's no government investigation office. It doesn't exist because the government doesn't exist. And so all of these things are privatized. They are all decentralized. You would have different defense companies Likely of many different types. So you might have a company that specializes in protection. You might have one that specializes in patrol of a given region or area, physical area. You might have a company that specializes in investigation. You would have companies that specialize in. Different sort of court type roles. So you might have one that looks like a traditional court system. You might have one that is more like an arbitration company. You might have one that does more mediation work and things like that. And there's lots of different roles that would be likely filled in this type of society because there is demand for all these things. There are some people that want a case heard quickly and efficiently and get it done and do it cheaply, those people would probably go to something that would look more like an arbitration court where the parties come in, they both agree to... The ruling that will be decided by this court, the court hears the case, they give a ruling, and the parties ideally submit to the ruling and go on about their business. It's pretty cheap. You don't have an entire court case, there's not a jury, there's not all of this evidence that's being brought in from all these different angles with these different investigations that have gone on. Now, there might be, of course, there would probably be evidence of different kinds and some of this would exist, but not to the detailed extent that it does in a traditional court setting. And so that is an aspect. And all of these would look very different and they would fill different niches that exist in the market. And it's the same with the defense companies. So there would be a demand for having a police force that is visible, that is there to respond if anything were to happen to people, and that would likely exist. More than likely, it would be some sort of subscription model so it's basically similar to how we pay for this stuff with our taxes today, but instead it would be itemized out and if you want protection for these types of things and you want someone patrolling your area and someone you can call if there is a crime committed against you or if you see a crime committed against someone else, then you would pay a certain amount. Maybe it's 10 bucks a month, maybe it's 30 bucks a month, maybe it's a dollar a month, who knows. It depends on what the supply and demand is. It depends on what the market mechanisms figure out is the most effective and efficient way to handle that demand. And so there would likely be different companies that are doing these different things. And you might have some companies that have multiple departments that do all these things. And so a company that has an investigative branch and also a branch that does patrolling and a branch that does... I don't know, protection, more like a bodyguard type services for people that pay a little bit extra, whatever. You've got all these different roles that would be filled, sometimes in one company, sometimes it'd be independent companies. Again, we don't know what this would look like, but whatever it looks like, it would probably look a lot different than what we see today. And I will also get into things like national defense and court systems in the following episode, so you can stay tuned for more on that as well. Something I've already mentioned in this episode, but that I had written down for this aspect of things that would look different would be that there's no crony capitalism it doesn't exist so basically in today's world when most people think of capitalism in western society especially on the liberal side of the spectrum they usually think crony capitalism that's what they think capitalism is and they usually do not know as much about what actual capitalism is as i have described it here they think of crony capitalism because that's what they see that's what exists in the world today and so with no state, you have no crony capitalism. So it's wonderful. You have competition and lawsuits that keep companies in check. And you do not have state regulation. Again, I've talked a little bit about regulation. I'll get into that as well in the next episode and how that works. But you have different mechanisms here that are, like I have said many times over and over again, more efficient and more effective. You have companies and employees that are directly liable for any damages. You can't hide or get protection from the state. It's not like these defense contractors. Let's say there is some private police force that is patrolling a certain area, and one of the cops begins chasing a suspect down the road and ends up breaking a window of a storefront. And then he... Continues to pursue the man, and it really doesn't matter what happens from there. But the point is that in today's world, that cop is not liable for the broken window. Cops in today's world have immunity against certain types of things, and they have liability to a very small extent over damages that they may or may not cause. Even when they are brought up on charges, they are often handled in-house And you can imagine, and I'm sure you've all heard examples of when that doesn't go very well, when you have corruption within a police department, and they handle it internally. And for some reason, it doesn't really get taken care of very well, and no one actually is punished. Very strange. But even if they do go to court, you have a system that's all designed by one monopoly. And so it's a government court that is trying government employees for the government police. And no, it's not some giant conspiracy where everybody's working together on this, but the incentives just don't really line up the same way they do in an open and free society where you have competition and decentralization and groups that are independent and competing against each other. It's just a totally different scenario here. And so getting rid of the state really gets rid of a lot of these nasty things about our current society and about these different aspects here. Another thing that looks different would be the role of charities and nonprofits, because they take over pretty much all humanitarian causes. Since there is no welfare state, there is no state at all. These things would be handled by charities, by churches, by nonprofit organizations, whatever, and they are funded by somebody. I talked about this earlier in the episode that non nonprofitable ventures must have support somehow. Well, these are them. These are the charities, these are the nonprofits. There is demand for helping other people. Yes, people in general in today's society are selfish. Yes, people want to keep as much as they can, they want more and more, they are materialistic, and they live their lives according to consumerism. At least from a high-level view, you could say these things are true, but even with this being the case... There are millions of dollars that go towards charities and nonprofits, even in today's system, even with the government handling the majority of these welfare-type situations and disaster response and all this kind of stuff. There's still millions of dollars that people are willingly and voluntarily giving to these types of things. There is a demand for this, and people are willing to support it. So you can't say that, oh, well, everybody's going to starve in the streets if they're not able to work. Well, number one, you could say insurance fills that role because there's an insurance policy from the time maybe they're even conceived. And just in case they're born with some defect and they can't work, well, they're covered for life. Yeah, there are lots of different theoretical scenarios that could cover somebody that is unfortunate in that respect. But beyond that, you would have charities and organizations that would handle these types of things. And this role would be filled because there is demand. Now, no, you would not have the situation that you currently have in many countries where it is actually more profitable to stay at home and not work and get government benefits than it would be to go out and get some sort of low-paying job or part-time work. And that's the scenario that exists today in many different places that would not exist in this case. The people that would receive charity and receive help would likely be people that really need it. Because there is no demand to support people that don't actually need help. And so that is the dynamic that would likely exist here. And this is different than what we have today. The final thing that I want to mention about major differences practically in a stateless society would be schools. Yes, this podcast covers government, money, and education. Schools are a very big deal, and education is one of the most important things in a society, period. And in a stateless society, schools would not be ran by the state. You would not have a state public school system. You would also not have a state that regulates how non-public schools operate and what curriculum they teach and all this kind of thing. Even in today's world... If you live in a country where homeschooling is legal, there are still plenty of regulations and state testing and different things like this that you have to do, even if you're educating your own kid at your own house. And there are many countries in the world today where that's actually illegal. You're not even allowed to do that. But in a free society where there is no force or coercion that restricts your ability to educate your children or choose how they are educated there would be a much more diverse portfolio of educational options. So you would have Charity schools more than likely for underprivileged kids and families that can't afford to send their kids to a school or for whatever reason are not able to educate their own kids. You would have vocational schools that would be teaching certain trades and life skills, things like this. You would have unschooling where kids are living life and learning in a more self-directed way. You would have specialized education for each kid you would have oversight by the parents you would have all of the things related to education like curriculum and how much time is spent towards education where they are learning what they are learning all these things would be governed by the parents not by the government and this would obviously look very different than what we have today in the series that will be coming up After the next series, so right now we're doing one on government, the next one will be on blockchain, and the following one will be on education alternatives, in a sense. I'll talk about these different things like homeschooling and unschooling, charter schools, Montessori schools... Uh, college alternatives, all these kinds of things. So if you want some more detail on some of these alternative movements and options and educational opportunities and what this looks like in today's world and possibly in the future, then I will get into much more detail on that in further episodes. But as it relates to this episode, education would look very different. With that you would probably have a much better educated society. People would know a lot more. They would know a lot more about the things they actually want to know about. They would be incentivized to actually learn and to better themselves in a way that would be much more effective and motivating than what they have today where you just memorize a bunch of stuff at least in a public school setting you memorize it you spit it out on a test according to how well you memorized it and how well you articulated it you get a grade and you end up graduating and even if you barely make it by and don't do a lot of work you can still graduate and then you get into a college which is oftentimes fairly easy to do and when you graduate college which is very similar to that system of public school, then you get a piece of paper and all of a sudden you are a much better choice for companies to hire because you were willing to spend a few years of your life partying and memorizing stuff out of a textbook, and so therefore you are a much better candidate for said job, and that's kind of our current system. Now, that is a very cynical look at it, and it does not cover everything. It is not all-inclusive. But again, if you have listened to all the episodes of season one, you have heard plenty about our education system, what it looks like, what the problems are, and you will hear plenty about alternatives in future episodes. So I will end my commentary on that here. So overall, within anarcho-capitalist society you have a totally different system than we have today. You have one that does not have a state. You do not have a governing body. There are no rulers. And everything is organized according to true capitalism, according to free markets and voluntary transaction, according to just markets in general, spontaneous order. Things are very effective, very efficient, very... Egalitarian in the sense of opportunity, not necessarily in the sense of all people are created equal and that they are all equally skilled. It's that all people are created equal in the sense that we all have the same rights and rights to our life and rights to the things we want to pursue in our actions. And these are the things that would be important in this society. So again, it looks very different than our current society. But the biggest difference of all, and I would say the broad theme here, is that there is a lot more personal responsibility. You're not going to be handed things on a silver platter by the government. They're not going to tell you what to do. They're not going to educate your kids for you. They're not going to set aside retirement for you. They're not going to help you if you didn't plan for your own life and now you're screwed. The government doesn't exist. The state doesn't exist. You have to handle this on your own. You have to raise your own kids. You have to teach your own kids. You have to feed your own family. You have to find your own job. You have to support yourself, and you are responsible for this. If you don't buy insurance, and you don't pay for your health or watch your health, then you will be responsible for the consequences. And that is a lot more personal responsibility than we have in today's world. But That is the system that anarcho-capitalism is. That's how it's structured. That's what it looks like. So I'll wrap up the episode here and move on to the closing remarks here. So I'm actually slightly wrong. I think the next episode, the very next episode, will be an update episode. So I'll talk about probably what the next series will be, what that looks like, and give a short recap of this government series And I'll talk about a few random things that are on my mind. That's what I've been doing on the update episodes as well as the actual updates. And on my mind right now, at least, is 9-11. It has recently been the anniversary of 9-11. And I will probably give some commentary on that. And who knows what else. So... That's what you can look forward to next time. That will be our update. And then the one after that, our next official episode, will be the one that covers the objections to anarcho-capitalism. I went ahead and pulled my notes for this one so I can read you some of these topics. They are probably things that have already crossed your mind. The most common objection to this type of system is, in my opinion, the... One that has the least amount of merit and import, and that would be who will build the roads. We will cover that. I will explain that. What about law and order? What about national defense and courts? What about monopolies? We don't want companies to take over the world. What about the poor? How are you going to take care of these poor people? What will happen to them? How are you going to make sure that companies don't just pollute because they're so focused on profits and no one's going to stop them? What about handling the demand of statists, of people that want the state, that want a government? If this is a free and open society, can't they have what they want? What about things like child abuse? That is one that is a very important issue that is a little dicey here. What about animal protection and land protection, the environment? How are you going to deal with that? What about guns? Isn't gun safety a very important thing? It's definitely on people's mind in today's political climate. So I will address all of these things. Those are my notes, at least the highlights for the following episode on the objections to anarcho-capitalism. It should be very interesting. I have really enjoyed my research into anarcho-capitalism probably just as much, if not more, than just about all the other research I have done. Probably a tie between this and educational theory in the sense of different educational methods and that kind of stuff are probably my two favorite. Yeah, blockchain is a big deal too. But (laughs) these uh, current series that we're in now, this one on government, the next one on blockchain, and the next one on education alternatives have probably been as a whole my favorite part of research and my favorite subjects to study throughout this entire podcast. And so I have really enjoyed it. Hopefully, you really enjoy it as well. Hopefully, it's interesting to you as well and you've gotten a lot out of it and it makes sense. So hopefully so. At this point, I will ask you for your support. So number one, if you haven't put a rating on this podcast on whatever source you are listening to this on, then please do so. Even if you're listening on the website, I know at least there's a way to leave a comment. I think you can leave a rating. I'm not really sure, but you can check. And if you're willing to write a few words, it won't take you very long. Please do so. You can comment on different episodes. And so that is greatly appreciated. I have at least one comment on one episode currently, and that is greatly appreciated. I really do take that into consideration. I read everything I get. And that's the next part is email me. Email me some feedback. I read all my emails. I respond to everyone who has emailed me in the past. And I do take into consideration all the things that you say. If there are things that you want, if there are things that you don't like, if there are criticisms, if there are corrections, if whatever anything just email me and i love hearing from you guys i really appreciate you listening and i want to provide what you want to hear i want to meet demand in the marketplace here and so in order to do that i need some sort of mechanism to figure out what that demand is and since i am not offering any product for sale and there is no price here, and there is no easy way to decide how to allocate my resources towards this podcast, then the way for me to do that easily would be for you to just tell me. That works out really well. So I appreciate everyone who has sent an email and given me some feedback on Reddit. I've gotten some feedback on there as well, and that is very useful. So thank you very much for that. In addition to that, If you want to support financially, you can give on Patreon.com. It's Patreon.com slash Our Foundations. There's a link in the show notes. And if you do so, you will be able to access some extra content. You will be able to have a little more input on the podcast and there are some different perks there. The main tier that's set up there is basically a dollar a week. It's $4 a month, and that is what I'm asking if you're willing to do that. Hopefully in time we can build up a little bit of a community there where we can discuss a lot of these ideas, and I can get some more detailed feedback on specific topics and episodes and curate this a little more specifically to the people that are most engaged. And that would be the goal. That would be really cool. So we'll see if it happens. Anybody who is willing to even do a one-time donation, I will also give you some sort of perks. And I will thank you individually as well. So the other thing you can do is follow me on Twitter and enjoy the wonderful memes that I will curate for you on there. And I think that's it. I think that's everything. Thank you very much for listening. I really do appreciate it. I'm out of here. Peace.